Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, and welcome back to the uh, Old Testament podcast. This episode is going to be Exodus chapter 20. My first question to you is, when were the Ten Commandments first given? Ah, this might be a trick question. You probably know the answer right off the top of your head, though. Variations of these laws are given in the rules laid down in Leviticus and Deuteronomy as they are applied to specific matters, but generally they form the foundation for all proper human conduct. The first four commandments show him his proper relationship to God. The fifth commandment establishes the importance of the family and proper family relationships. The last five commandments regulate man's relationships with his fellow men. A man who has committed himself to the perfecting of his relationship with God, family, and fellow man is well on his way to perfection in all things. That was out of the Institute Manual. So how many, uh, or when were the Ten Commandments first given? They were first given to Adam. Duh. Okay, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, if God is not first, then all others are all other things are affected. Nothing in life, not even such treasured things as families or even life itself, can take priority or come before God. His power is only power that can be is the only power that can save us. Verse four Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I the Lord Thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the ch- upon the children and unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. The word jealous, the Hebrew, possessing sensitive and deep feelings, uh, and then talking about um, the fathers uh, being being uh, the iniquities of the fathers. Insofar as the children learn and do the sinful things the parents do, but see verse six concerning those who repent and serve the Lord. Modern idols or false gods can take such forms as clothes, homes, businesses, machines, automobiles, pleasure boats, and numerous other material deflectors from the path of godhood, or the path to godhood. Verse 6, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, i.e. utters an oath or makes a promise using the Lord's name without valid purpose. When a person is baptized in covenants to take the name of Christ upon himself, if he forgets that solemn oath made at baptism, he has taken the name of the Lord in vain. How you speak says much about who you are. Clean and intelligent language is evidence of a bright and wholesome mind. Use language that uplifts and encourages and compliments others. Do not insult others or put them down, even in joking. Speak kindly and positively about others so you can fulfill the Lord's commandment to love one another. When you use good language, you invite the Spirit to be with you. Always use the names of God and Jesus Christ with reverence and respect. Misusing their names is a sin. Profane, vulgar, or crude language or gestures, as well as jokes about immoral actions, are offensive to the Lord and to others. Foul language harms your spirit and degrades you. Do not let others influence you to use it. Choose friends who use good language. Help others around you use clean language by your example and by good-naturedly encouraging them to choose other words. 
politely walk away or change the subject when others around you use bad language. If you have developed the habits of swearing, you can break it. Begin by making a decision to change. Pray for help. If you start to use words you know are wrong, keep quiet or say what you have to say in a different way. That was out of the Strength of Youth pamphlet. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The word Sabbath, the Hebrew, means stopping or cessation or rest from labor. Once each week, man is commanded to cease his own labors and allow God to perform his work of sanctification on him. Resting on the Sabbath, then, implies far more than taking a nap or stopping normal activities. Mankind must enter into the Lord's work on that day. And again, out of the Strength of Youth pamphlet, The Lord has given the Sabbath day for your benefit and has commanded you to keep it holy. Observing the Sabbath will bring you closer to the Lord and to your family. It will give you needed rest and rejuvenation. Many uplifting activities are appropriate for the Sabbath. Worship the Lord, attend church, spend quiet time with your family, study the gospel, write letters, write in your your journal, do family history work, and visit the sick or homebound. Your dress before, during, and after church meetings should show respect for the Sabbath. When seeking a job, share with your potential employer your desire to attend your Sunday meetings and keep the Sabbath day holy. Many employers value employees with with these personal convictions. Whenever possible, choose a job that does not require you to work on Sundays. Sunday is not a holiday or a day for recreation or athletic events. Do not seek entertainment or spend money on this day. Let your friends know what your standards are so they will not try to persuade you to participate in activities that are not appropriate for the Sabbath. Verse 9, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger or sojourner that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it, or sanctified, or consecrated. Verse 12, Honor, or respect, or value, thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Any time a child lives wickedly, he brings shame to his parents, whether or not the parents are righteous. So honoring parents may not always imply obeying them. In those relatively few cases where parents may ask for or encourage unrighteous behavior in their children, the individual brings dishonor to his parents if he obeys them. Verse 13, Thou shalt not kill, in the Hebrew is murder. In a pertinent statement set forth in a message of the First Presidency to the Church during World War II and delivered at the General Conference on April 6, 1942, this subject was fully discussed. This was delivered at a time when nearly 100,000 Latter-day Saint youths were engaged in or were undergoing training for combat in the most destructive war in all history. I quote here from that message, The church is and must be against war. The church itself cannot wage war unless and until the Lord shall issue new commands. It cannot regard war as a righteous means of settling international disputes. These should and could be settled, the nations agreeing by peaceful negotiation and adjustment. But the church membership are citizens or subjects of sovereignties over which the church has no control. The Lord himself has told us, while by its terms... This revealed word related more especially to this land of America. Nevertheless, the principles announced are worldwide in their application, and they are specifically addressed to you and your brethren of my church. When therefore constitutional law obedient to these principles calls the manhood of the church into an armed service of any country to which they owe allegiance, their highest civic duty requires that they meet that call. 
If hearkening to that call and obeying those in command over them, they shall take the lives of those who fight against them. That will not make of them murderers, nor subject them to the penalty that God has prescribed for those who kill. For it would be a cruel God that would punish his children as moral sinners for acts done by them as the innocent instrumentalities of a sovereign whom he had told them to obey and whose will they were powerless to resist. The whole world is in the midst of a war that seems the worst of all time. The church is a worldwide church. Its devoted members are in both camps. They are the innocent war instrumentalities of their warring sovereignties. On each side they believe they are fighting for home and country and freedom. On each side our brethren pray to the same God in the same name for victory. Both sides cannot be wholly right. Perhaps neither is neither is without wrong. God will work out in his own sovereign way the justice and right of the conflict, but he will not hold the innocent instrumentalities of the war, our brethren in arms, responsible for the conflict. This is a major crisis in the world life of man. God is at the helm. There is, then, a vast difference in destroying life while acting under the mandate of a sovereign nation whom we are in duty bound to obey and wantonly killing on our own responsibility. It would be well for every young man called to military service to study carefully the above-quoted statement of the First Presidency. Verse 14, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Physical intimacy between husband and wife is beautiful and sacred. It is ordained of God for the creation of children and for the expression of love between husband and wife. God has commanded that sexual intimacy be reserved for marriage. When you obey God's commandment to be sexually pure, you prepare yourself to make and keep sacred covenants in the temple. You prepare yourself to build a strong marriage and to bring children into the world as part of a loving family. You protect yourself from the emotional damage that always comes from sharing physical intimacies with someone outside of marriage. Do not have any sexual relations before marriage and be completely faithful to your spouse after marriage. Satan may tempt you to rationalize that sexual intimacy before marriage is acceptable when two people are in love. That is not true. In God's sight, sexual sins are extremely serious because they defile the power God has given us to create life. The prophet Alma taught that sexual sins are more serious than any other sins except murder or denying the Holy Ghost. Before marriage, do not do anything to arouse the powerful emotions that must be expressed only in marriage. Do not participate in passionate kissing, lie on top of another person, or touch the private sacred parts of another person's body with with or without clothing. Do not allow anyone to do that with you. Do not arouse those emotions in your own body. In cultures where dating or courting is acceptable, always treat your date with respect, never as an object to be used for your lustful desires. Stay in areas of safety where you can easily control your physical feelings. Do not participate in talk or activities that arouse sexual feelings. Homosexual activity is a serious sin. If you find yourself struggling with same-sex gender attraction, seek counsel from your parents and bishop. They will help you. Victims of rape, incest, or other sexual abuse are not guilty of sin. If you have been a victim of any of these crimes, know that you are innocent and that God loves you. Seek your bishop's counsel immediately so he can help guide you through the process of emotional healing. If you are tempted to commit sexual transgressions, seek help from your parents, your bishop, and friends you can trust. Pray to the Lord who will help you resist temptation and overcome inappropriate thoughts and feelings. If you have committed sexual transgressions, begin the process of repentance now so you can find inner peace and have the full companionship of the Spirit. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Talk with your bishop. He will help you obtain the forgiveness available to those who truly repent. And that was again in the Strength of Youth pamphlet. Verse 15, Thou shalt not steal. 
President Kimball said, In public office and private lives, the word of the Lord thunders, Thou shalt not steal, nor do anything like unto it. We find ourselves rationalizing in all forms of dishonesty, including shoplifting, which is a mean, low act, indulged in by millions who claim to be honorable, decent people. Dishonesty comes in many other forms, in hijacking or playing with, upon private love and emotions for filthy lucre, in robbing money tills or stealing commodities of employers, in falsifying accounts, in taking advantage of other taxpaying people by misuse of food stamps and false claims, in taking unreal exemptions in government or private loans without intent to repay, in unjust improper bankruptcies to avoid repayment of loans, in robbing on the street or in the home money and other precious possessions, in stealing time, giving less than a full day of honest labor for a full day's compensation, in writing without paying the fare, and in all forms of dishonesty in all places and in all conditions. To all thieveries and dishonest acts, the Lord has said, Thou shalt not steal. Four short common words he used. Perhaps he wearied of the long list. He could have made of ways to steal, misrepresent, and take advantage, and he covered all methods of taking that which does not properly belong to one, saying, Thou shalt not steal. Verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. To bear false witness is to testify to or to pass along reports, insinuations, speculations, or rumors as if they were true to the hurt of a fellow human being. Sometimes the practice stems from a lack of correct information, sometimes from lack of understanding, sometimes from misunderstandings, sometimes from a vicious disposition to distort and misrepresent. Whereas murder involves the taking of human life, bearing false witness centers in the destruction of character or its defamation. It reaches to the ruin of reputation. Be honest with, uh, with yourself, others, and the Lord. When you are honest in every way, you build strength of character and will allow you to be of great service to God and others. You will be blessed with peace of mind and self-respect. When you are honest, you will be trusted by the Lord and by those around you. Dishonesty hurts you and usually hurts others as well. When you lie, steal, shoplift, or cheat, you damage your spirit and becomes... Uh, and becomes less able to do good things. Be honest in your job, giving a full amount of work for your for your pay. Don't rationalize that wrong is right, even though many people around you may think there is no harm in being dishonest. Being honest requires courage and commitment to do what you know is right. And that, again, out of the strength of youth pamphlet. That's a pretty good thing to read, isn't it? Uh, I think the rest of this is probably out of that too. Well, maybe not. Verse 17, Thou shalt not covet, the Hebrew is desire or take pleasure in, thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. This is the last of the Ten Commandments, and if it were not so involved with all the others, some might suppose it to be one of the least. But all the commandments are so intertwined that none can be broken without weakening all the others. To illustrate and to remind ourselves of the other nine, he who covets the mere material things of life may have other gods before him and may bow down before them in thought and in spirit, if not in physical fact. He who covets may become coarse and careless in other things also, such as taking the name of the Lord God in vain. He who covets may desecrate the Sabbath day to get gain. He who covets may fail to sustain his father and his mother in their need. Some who have coveted, coveted have killed to get gain. Many who have coveted a neighbor's wife have committed the grievous sin of adultery. He who covets is more likely to steal or to swindle or embezzle or engage in sharp practices. He who covets may bear false witness to get gain. And so again, the Tenth Commandment is inseparably integrated with all the others, and coveting could lead to infraction of all the others, for there is a wholesome the wholeness in life in which each in 
in life in which each part complements the other. And there is a wholesome, or there is a wholeness and harmony in the Word of God, and it all comes from the same source. And whenever we ignore any divine counsel or commandment, we can be sure that we weaken ourselves and increase our susceptibility to other sins. The commandment against covetousness does not mean that we should not have a wholesome discontent or a wholesome desire to improve ourselves or our situation. It does not mean that we should not have an honest ambition to have more of the better things in life. It does not mean that we may not admire that our, what our neighbor has and seek by our own industry to earn things of like worth. The earth has, holds plenty for all, and the urge to acquire for ourselves such good things as other men have is a productive quality of character, provided that we acquire them by honest effort, by lawful means, and by keeping life well balanced. The danger comes when, more, when mere things beca- begin to matter too much. That was by Richard L. Evans. The scriptures contain an interesting definition of coveting. Paul, on, on two occasions, equated coveting with idolatry. The implication is that when what sets his heart on things of the world to the point that allegiance to God and his principles no longer matters, then material things become as a god to that person. He follows after them or worships them, and this practice is the same as idolatry. The Lord said that idolatry was a major characteristic of this generation. Samuel told Saul that sin and iniquity were also idolatry. Verse 18, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou unto us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that, or because respect for him will always be present with you, you will not sin. His fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. They heard God's voice, but did not see him. Ye shall not make unto you gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stones, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. The stones for the altar cannot be cut, they must be natural stones. Verse 26, Neither shalt thou go up by steps, in other words, a ramp was rather to be provided, unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered or revealed thereon. This seems like an odd uh, scripture, doesn't it? Okay, let me read a little background of this one. The impression produced upon the people by the phenomena, well, let me, uh, let me answer first about the going up the ramp. If you go up stairs... Apparently, the, in, in the climbing process, your, your legs might uh, uncover that you don't have any clothing underneath your, 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 the clothing that you're wearing. And so a ramp would be more inducive to uh, not having to take high steps uh, so that your clothes don't reveal that you don't have anything on underneath. Anyway, that's the purpose of the ramp instead of the stairs. The impression produced upon the people by the phenomena accompanying God's revelation of his law was so deep that they entreated that any further divine communication might be made through the mediatorship of Moses. 
As Peter, when the divine power of the Lord Jesus suddenly burst upon him, felt that he was a sinful man, could not stand in the presence of his Lord, so were the children of Israel afraid, afraid of death if they continued before God. But such feelings of fear have nothing spiritual in themselves. While Moses acceded to their request, he was careful to explain that the object of all they had witnessed had not been the excitement of fear, but such searching of heart as might issue, not in slavish apprehension, of outward consequences, but in that true fear of God, which would lead to the avoidance of sin. And now Moses stood once more alone in the thick darkness where God was. The ordinances then given him must be regarded as the final preparation for that covenant, which was so soon to be ratified. For as the people of God, Israel must not be like the other nations. Alike in substance and in form, the conditions of their national life, the fundamental principles of their state, and the so-called civil rights and ordinances, which were to form the groundwork of society, must be divine. To use a figure, Israel was God's own possession. Before hallowing and formally setting it apart, God marked it out and drew the boundary lines around his property. Such was the subject and the meaning of the ordinances which preceded the formal conclusion of the covenant recorded in Exodus 24. Accordingly, the principles and judgments, or rather the rights and and juridical arrangements on which national life and civil society in Israel were based, were not only infinitely superior to anything known or thought of at the time, but such as to embody the solid and abiding principles of national life for all times. And in truth, they underlie all modern legislation so that the Mosaic ordinances are and will remain the grand model on which civil society is constructed. Fully to understand the sublime principles of the Mosaic, or rather the divine law, they must be examined in detail. This, of course, is impossible in this place. Without entering into details, we note the general arrangement of these ordinances. They were preceded by a general indication of the manner in which Israel was to worship. As God had spoken to Israel from heaven, so they were not to make any earthly representation of of what was heavenly. On the other hand, as God would come unto them from heaven to earth and there hold intercourse with them, the altar which was to rise from earth towards heaven was to be simply an altar of earth or if of stones of such as were in the condition in which they had been found in the earth. Moreover, as the altar indicated that place on earth where God would appear for the purpose of blessing Israel, it was only to be reared where God recorded his name, that is, where he appointed it. In other words, their worship was to be regulated by his manifestation in grace, and not by their own choice or preferences. For grace lies at the foundation of all praise and prayer. The sacrifices and worship of Israel were not to be were not to procure grace. Grace had been the originating cause of their worship, and so it ever is. We love him because he first loved us, and the gift of his dear son to us sinners is free and unconditional and part of the Father, and makes our return unto him possible. And because this grace is free, it becomes man all the more to serve God with, with holy reverence, which show which should show itself even in outward demeanor. And that was by Alfred Edersheim. Anyway, these are the Ten Commandments. Uh, Let me just read a couple of other little narrative things that are interesting from Edersheim. It is not easy to say how they were arranged on these two tables in talking about the tablets of stone, but but not improbably the first four words, which with the preface in verse 1, may have occupied the first and the other six commandments, the second table of the law. 
Considering more closely these ten words, or ten commandments of the covenant, we notice first their number, ten, as that of completeness. Next, we see that the fifth commandment, to honor our parents, forms a transition from the first to the second table. The first table detailing our duties towards God, the second those towards man. But our duty to our parents is higher than that towards men generally, indeed in a certain sense is divine, just as the relationship to an earthly father symbolizes that to our Father in heaven. Hence the command is to honor, whereas our duty to men only requires us to love them. Again, almost all the commandments are put in a negative form, thou shalt not, implying that transgression, not obedience, is natural to us. But the commandment is exceeding broad and requires a corresponding right state of mind. Accordingly, you find that the law of the Ten Commandments commandments is summed up in this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and and thy neighbor as thyself. Lastly, the first five words have always some reason or motive attached to them, not so those of the second table, which are mostly put quite generally to show that such commands as not to kill, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to bear false witness, are intended to to apply to all possible cases, and not only to to friends or fellow citizens. So that's the end of uh, chapter 20. I hope you enjoyed that, and we'll see you next time. Bye.